All right. Uh, welcome back, everybody. This is The Social Brain. This is episode 12. Uh, we have some really exciting... We're, I think Andrew and I are both really excited about this episode uh, because this is really useful stuff that we're going to be talking about. Uh, we're going to start by talking about dopamine and how dopamine is involved with learning, with motivation, uh, but really kind of stick through to the end of this one because we're going to go into some really cool stuff about how to kind of cultivate intrinsic motivation and everything. So uh, I'm Taylor Guthrie. Uh, I'm a social neuroscientist, and this is my co-host, Andrew Cooper Sansone. Uh, and I'll kick it over to him and he can kind of start us off. All right. Well, hey, everybody. So yeah, like Taylor said, we're going to be talking about dopamine, motivation, learning. And the way I want to start out this episode is just kind of um, ask you if you have experienced burnout or exhaustion in your work life or just life in general. And I think like the, there's this uh, this 2018 Gallup poll. So this poll that showed that 23% of employees in the US say they feel burned out at work all or most of the time. And I think we can all kind of relate to that at, at various points in our life, depending on you know, what, our, what job we have or where we're at, what kind of things are going on in our life. And um, the, the point I want to get at here is, is that it's, it's not bad to have dips in motivation. It's, we're going to talk about how motivation naturally kind of ebbs and flows. But when you have this, this ongoing lack of motivation, this exhaustion that can lead to kind of uh, depression, um, it's, it, that's burnout. That's sort of, um, the, uh, the, the low, the really like sustained low motivation, um, and we're today we're going to be talking about the the biology of dopamine and motivation a little bit, but we're also going to really talk about the the psychology behind um, or the psychology of of motivation and uh, self determination theory, some of the determinants of staying motivated, and um, a lot of that is going to translate to maybe if you are feeling burned out, changing habits and behaviors, but. It might also have to do with, with changing your goals or the nature of your goals, how um, big or small your goals are. Um, so yeah, we're going to be talking about all kinds of stuff regarding motivation and dopamine. And I guess we're going to just start out with the with dopamine and motivation, just the, the real basic picture of this. And um, we're not going to spend too much time on this. Uh, I have a video on dopamine that's linked in the comments or, and, or sorry, in the caption. And we've also, I also linked a video from Andrew Huberman down there, the Huberman lab podcast. He has an awesome video on motivation and dopamine, and he goes really deep into how to optimize it, how to, um, increase dopamine, how to keep it from g getting out of control or getting to that, that low state we're talking about kind of burnout. Um, and also there are, if you're really interested in going really deep into kind of the, the science, the neuroscience of dopamine, I also linked um, a channel called Virtual Dopamine. Um, and it's a, it was a, just a collection of lectures from a conference in 2020 with some of the top dopamine researchers in the world. So if you really want to go deep into that stuff, uh, that's all there in the, uh, the captions, although I think it's just in my video. So I'll have to copy it over to uh, Taylor's yeah. side, but um, the basic picture, and we're going to get more deeper into this is that dopamine and motivation are really tightly linked. So when motivation is, or sorry, when dopamine levels are high, motivation is also high, but there's, there's some nuances in that picture. So I'm going to hand it off to Taylor and, and <laughs> going to explain some of those. Yeah. And I, I really liked a lot of the points that you just made, because uh, really what we, we want to do in uh, this podcast in general, I mean, in this show is uh, to provide you a lot of the resources about how to get deep with some of this stuff, but also to kind of translate that into a practical way that you can use in your own life. Uh, because what we're really going to be talking about here is to how to define value in your life and how to kind of take advantage of, of what may be going on biologically. And what is really interesting about dopamine that has kind of uh, transpired over the last like 50 years as, as it's been studied uh, is that it used to be viewed as this purely reward type thing. 
Uh, and we have a, a whole video on addiction that we did earlier. I think that was one of our, our earlier episodes that really got into how that kind of got taken apart. But what is really starting to to kind of come out of this is that reward can be split into these these different components. Reward has a liking component, like I really enjoy this reward that I'm indulging in, right? The chocolate, the sex, the whatever it is. But the the components that that dopamine is really involved in, it's not involved in the liking of things. Like animals can like things without any dopamine neurons at all. What dopamine is really involved in is learning and motivation. And there's there's some stuff that Andrew Huberman gets into that's that's really interesting where he talks about spikes in dopamine versus kind of this sustained level of dopamine that rises and falls. Uh, and what we really want to highlight today is how that's linked to these two different components, right? So on the one end, you have these, these spikes that happen. Uh, some people call them like dopamine hits or whatever. Uh, it could be really related to, I mean, video games take advantage of this, right? It's all about kind of experiencing a reward and usually an unexpected reward. Like you're getting something more than what you bargained for right? And your brain is like, ooh, I like that. I got my new like gold plated gun in the video game, like super cool, <laughs> right? Uh, <laughs> and that spike is really short lived, right? And so usually when that happens, you have this like excitement, and then it dissipates, right? And usually if you experience that same reward over and over again, that spike goes away. And so you stop experiencing the same like flood of like, ooh, that was really exciting to that same reward. And this has been described by lots of, this is linked to addiction, right? The, the more you use these substances, the less exciting it actually gets and the more and more you have to use to, to kind of convince yourself. Uh, and this component is what is really driving learning, right? One of the really important components of dopamine is that it's tagging things as being important predictors of future reward. That that thing was really exciting. Let's remember that that thing brought us something valuable, right? And there's actually really cool studies that show that if you have dopamine release at the same time that two neurons are firing together, that it actually encourages those to grow together. So the dendrites to grow together, it, it, uh, it's long-term potentiation is what the kind of fancy term for it is, right? It allows those things to develop stronger synapses with each other. And that dopamine helps facilitate that whole process. So that's kind of the learning side. And it's really important to understand that like the big spikes that you get, the really exciting things that you get from dopamine are really about learning new things in your environment. And it's not, it makes sense why those go away, right? Because now if you expect it, there's nothing to learn, right? You don't want to encourage plasticity. You don't want to encourage this thing to keep learning and making new connections because you already know what's going to happen. And so you stop getting that dopamine. It, yeah, that, yeah, go ahead. Oh, no, no, go go for it. No, I, you jump in because I'm gonna I'm gonna take <laughs> the other side. So if you got something to say, uh, yeah, no, I was just saying, um, and it's uh, it's interesting because the with just as a, like a fine point on the kind of prediction part of this, um, what we're talking about here is is uh, dopamine's involvement in something called reward prediction error, and um, when Taylor is saying that it's it fires, or sorry, you get a, um, a spike of dopamine, um, especially in response to an unexpected reward. Well, when when that reward becomes expected, you're able to predict uh, that you're going to get that reward. Um, it's the, the uh, before the the dopamine peak starts to go away, you get a peak before when you know that you're going to get the reward, not when you get the reward itself, which is kind of um, interesting kind of telling uh, about what dopamine's actually doing. It's it's telling us in some way that that this behavior is worth doing. And then it's not the actual reward itself. It's not what's causing the good feeling. It is um, sort of a predictor or a, a way of training your brain, teaching your brain that um, th this sort of activity, this thing that you're doing is going to produce um, this kind of outcome, this good outcome for you. I really like to think about it as being the, the neurotransmitter that's very forward looking, 
right? It's, uh, it's not a here and now chemical. It's not about liking things in the moment. It's about predicting future resources, right? No matter what those resources may be. I mean, it's been tied to physiological resources like water and food. It's been tied to sex. It's been tied to safety and aversion type behaviors. Uh, but what we'll get into later in this episode is that it's also tied to psychological value, right? We as humans have all of those needs met for most of our life. But we now have this amazing frontal lobe that can define value, right? That can say like, I want to go after this thing, like social belonging or recognition or making myself a better person. And we can actually like direct the dopamine towards valuing those things because they are future rewards, if that makes sense. But- That's a really, yeah. Yeah. And that's uh, like, uh, Andrew was saying this is very much built on uh, something that Wolfram Schultz was it was a big part in discovering this uh, reward prediction error. I think he's he mentioned one of his talks is, is linked down in his video. Uh, and so really important there to remember that like dopamine is a learning chemical to the mo for the most part. And this really makes sense in terms of addiction. And you can go back to our addiction episode and kind of watch that. But you realize why people have triggers in their environment, right? When you experience dopamine and you experience this like drug that you're taking or whatever it is, you are also tagging all of these things in your environment as being predictors of that reward. And so you are now like training your brain to seek those things, like to go into that bedroom, to do that drug, to, to seek those friend groups, to do that drug. Uh, and that starts to turn into the motivational component which I think is a really kind of important transition. So you have these spikes, right? These spikes are very important for learning. It's like something just happened. That was, that was amazing. And like, uh, it's gonna happen again, that's amazing. But what we've also started to find are there these things called dopamine ramps that the very first time that you experience an unexpected reward, there's this spike, right? And it happens right when you get the novel thing, right? It's like, there's no ramping up, there's nothing. It's just like, all of a sudden you're like, whoa, that was cool. And you have this huge spike of dopamine. But after that, once you've recognized that that thing is important, that that thing is valuable. Now, every time you approach that thing, you have this ramping up of dopamine that tracks with your proximity to that valuable thing. So the closer you get to getting that thing, the higher and higher the dopamine gets, right? And and then as soon as you get it, it's gone, right? And that's why it's it makes sense. Like as soon as you obtain something, there's no motivation anymore. And this this is where this distinction is really important, that there's this learning component that is very tied to these, these transient spikes. But then there's also this motivational component that's really tied to approach behavior. That's tied to me actually seeking out some kind of a reward. And that ramping up of dopamine is what you get more and more excited about as you get closer and closer to a reward. And I think we can all kind of relate to that, that as it's, it's, I can't think of a good quote right now, but there's, there's kind of this sentiment, I think, um, that, that it, the, the pleasure of, of going after something is in the pursuit itself more than the actual attainment of that thing. So I think like what Taylor's talking about, it, it definitely tracks well with our, our, um, you know, our personal experiences that as you, you get closer and closer, as you're pursuing this thing and you're, you're, you are on the way to getting it. I think we can all kind of relate that there, there's something that's sort of more, um, like it's just more pleasurable, like during the actual pursuit of that thing than, than when you get it, even though what you're looking forward to, uh, it, like it's, it's sort of a weird psychological trick almost that we have like built into our system. Um, and I just wanted to mention as we, we move on, we'll, we'll probably talk a little more about dopamine, but as we move on from it, if you want a really good, uh, popular, not too technical account of dopamine and how it relates to all this stuff that we're talking about this book, the molecule of more, um, by Dan Lieberman and Michael Long is just a, a really great, um, really good book, really like well-written and just nice account of how dopamine is involved in all these kinds of behaviors. So, uh, 
yeah, check that out if you want a little bit deeper dive. And also, I just wanted to mention, um, if you guys have any questions, uh, definitely throw them in the chat. We'll be answering those intermittently. But um, I see Sadiq TM says, am I alone? No, you're not alone. <laughs> and hello to Schnitzel in the chat. Yeah. yeah. So, All right. and, uh, so I want to piggyback on something you just said, because it's, uh, it's really interesting. Our culture very much kind of puts the end goal on a pedestal, right? That it's, it's all about that, that pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. Uh, and you see all of this, like this ancient wisdom and everything, like the Buddha quotes about, uh, it's about the journey, not the destination. Um, there's, there's, there is a quote that kind of came to mind from Kent Barrage, who's a big, uh, kind of big name in the dopamine field uh, that really uh, kind of helped to separate these different components of dopamine from liking and wanting and all of these things. Uh, but he said, think of, think back on your life and think about how many moments of intense pleasure you had compared to how many moments of intense desire, intense motivation and craving you had, right? Most of our life is spent in the craving section, is spent in the desire section, is spent in that journey trying to achieve something. Now, as animals, back in our evolutionary past, we were working on much shorter timescales, right? We were trying to achieve like stability with food and water right now, right? We were maybe doing some foraging that required thinking in terms of hours or maybe even like a day or two. Uh, as you get into more complex animals like migration paths, you can think about things more long-term. But we as humans can think really, really far into the future, right? And we can define value really far into the future. And so a lot of these studies that are being done with dopamine are being done on mice. And so a lot of what we we have to do in the rest of this episode is kind of speculate a little bit on what might be happening in humans. But it could be the fact that we are creating these dopamine ramps in ourselves by defining value, by using our frontal lobe to say, I have this target, this valuable thing in the future, and I am gonna I am gonna hold it in such regard that I'm gonna cause my brain to want to be motivated to go towards it. And I'm going to kind of reinforce that the journey itself is valuable and and feel the kind of good feelings of dopamine because of that. Yeah, yeah. I guess I, I shouldn't have been using the word pleasure in that, uh, what I was saying earlier, um, but that's, that's exactly what I was meant to say. Um, and the only thing I wanted to mention was as, as great as dopamine feels as uh, this uh, motivation and this drive, this seeking um, type behavior, um, this book, the, the molecule of more that I just mentioned, um, they really emphasize that it's, you know, there's kind of like, like, uh, the dopamine is this future oriented molecule that we're, we're talking about here, but these other feel good neurotransmitters like, uh, serotonin and oxytocin, um, these also make us feel good, but they're more about, uh, the here and now. And the, the um, Lieberman and Long in this book, that's what they call them, the, the here and now neurotransmitters. And so, you know, it's not like life is not just about pursuing your goals. It's also about enjoying the, the calm moments, the just being in the present. So I think I uh, just wanted to emphasize that, like, you know, we're not uh, ignoring that side of things. It's just as far as dopamine goes. Um, the, no, uh, I really the, like that you pursuit. brought that up. Because, mm -hmm. yeah, it's uh, and it tracks with a lot of the things that I've experienced, right? You're on this like amazing adventure, right? And you like see this like beautiful sunset with like the, the snow and everything. And you're at this nice hotel or whatever. And it's like, oh, that's a cool sunset. And then you just like go back to doing what you're doing, right? Uh, the here and now stuff is really important. I mean, that's what like mindfulness and all of that kind of stuff is for because like, if your whole thing is about getting to that end destination, then once you get there, that excitement is gone. And so I think it'd be really cool to do another episode where we get more into serotonin and that kind of stuff, because I think that is important. Yeah, for sure. If anyone's interested, I do have a, a video on my channel called uh, a theory of serotonin or something like that. And um, just, just to mention it, it's uh, serotonin is in contrast to dopamine kind of more about um dealing with, um, oh uh, yeah, I'll get to the chat in just a sec, but, uh, it's more about like, like coping with adversity. At least there, there are some researchers who believe that. And, um, and it, it's sort of like, 
when you raise serotonin levels, makes people less aggressive, um, just like more chilled out. And um, just wanted to kind of mention that in there. But anyway, I think we are we do we want to move on to some of the brain systems in that dopamine just sort of briefly mention these maybe yeah. um well, i think that's important yeah okay so um so there there are two basic systems that uh dopamine is kind of driving in the brain or that it's extremely important for and the first is this one that we've been talking about the motivated behavior and this is really centered on what's called the mesolimbic or mesolimbic mesocortical pathway. And um, the, that word just um, refers to the fact that this system originates in the ventral tegmental area of the midbrain or the mesencephalon. Mm -hmm. Don't have to remember all these words or anything, but just know that there's these two separate systems. And this first system is really mostly about motivated behavior and learning and the types of thing we've been just been talking about. And it has this pathway that goes from the, the ventral tegmental area to various um, limbic structures and um, into the, the prefrontal cortex. And that's kind of that's the, the, the system that we are really talking about in this episode. Um, this one is associated with uh, addiction and um, schizophrenia. So uh, as Taylor's talking about addiction, um, has a lot to do with dopamine, with this um, kind of pathological reward prediction error signaling. And then um, schizophrenia has to do with uh, elevated levels of dopamine, especially in, um, in cortical areas. And I have a video on that if you want, if you're interested in learning more. Um, and then the, the second system <clears throat> is more about movement. And it's uh, dopamine is really, really important in movement. So if you've ever heard about dopamine, you've either heard of it in the context of motivated behaviors or movement. And obviously these are kind of closely linked things. Um, motivated behaviors often involve movement, especially for, for animals. Um, and this origin, this is uh, kind of the, called the nig nigrostriatal pathway. And um, again, don't have to memorize these things, but this is kind of a more limited pathway. It's uh, more concentrated in the brainstem and basal ganglia, and um, it's more involved in movements, the selection of movements. And when this system is damaged, it leads often to symptoms of, of Parkinson's disease or Parkinsonianism. Um, so the, the kind of um, movement, uh, challenges, movement disabilities um, associated with that system. And I think something that ties these two together that's really interesting um, is, uh, and Andrew Huberman gets into this in his podcast, but uh, is the fact that dopamine is part of a pathway to adrenaline, to norepinephrine is what adrenaline is in the brain, but um, the onset of dopamine creates the chemicals that get you moving, including glutamate, all of these things. But what you have to think about is that there's two parts to that, right? There's identifying value in the world, and then there's initiating the movement to go get that value, right? And so that kind of ties these two systems together. You have this one system that's really about identifying the things in our environment that are special, that are things that are going to attribute to, that are going to contribute to our survival, right? Uh, however we define survival, right? Survival for an animal is food, water, safety, uh, reproduction. Uh, survival for us is belonging, is recognition, is becoming who we're supposed to be in society. Right. Um, there are a lot of people that study dopamine that talk about the fact that it's a really ancient system that we now have new keys to. It's doing the same thing that it did for these other animals. It's initiating behavior towards these valuable things in our environment. It's causing us to be motivated to get up off the couch, go do things. It's not surprising that people with depression have really low levels of dopamine. Right. Not surprising that burnout is a really low level of dopamine. Right, because you don't have this this drive. You can't get off the couch. You can't go do things. And what that requires is defining value. And I think something that's really important that Andrew highlighted is that this mesolimbic cortical pathway starts in the midbrain, goes into the limbic area, 
it's starting in these really old regions, right? That were involved in initiating movement, involved in survival, but it's now got this connection to these frontal regions that are really uniquely human, right? That are really about, when you look at brain scans around value, right? Around subjective value, you see two areas light up and that's the nucleus accumbens, which is where these reward prediction errors are, these like spikes and like, oh, that's special. And the ventral, uh, medial frontal prefrontal cortex i can't talk uh <laughs> the region that we've talked a lot about on this episode is being the self region of the brain the region that like really defines what's important to us who we are what we're trying to do in this world and so a lot of this may be kind of speculation at this point but like the way that i see the way that these things are connected is that the frontal regions allow us to look really far into the future to define value in the future and to define what's important to us so that these dopamine systems have targets for their action. Yeah, that, that's such a great way to think about it. <clears throat> um, and I guess the, the frontal lobe also kind of sets up the, the, the steps that we need to take to get to that ultimate reward and uh, just mm -hmm. kind of adding on to that. Um, I just wanted to, to go to the chat really quickly and just answer a question. Um, Schnitzel asks, where can I rewatch this episode? Um, you can watch it on either of our channels, or you can go to the Social Brain podcast on whatever podcast platform you use. You can also listen to it on the Sense of Mind podcast. Um, so there are multiple places you can check it out. Um, just uh, kind of visit one of our channels and you'll, you'll find it there. So I think this is a good place to transition into some of the psychology uh, because there's some really good, cool research out there on motivation in general from a behavioral perspective. And now that we kind of know what's going on biologically with this dopamine and everything, uh, it's really interesting. We can kind of bridge the two. So do you want to maybe kick off intrinsic and extrinsic? Yeah. So, <clears throat> excuse me. Uh, so intrinsic and extrinsic motivation are uh, kind of two different uh types of motivation, two types of motivators, I guess you can think of it that way. Um, so just really basic intrinsic motivation are, are um, kind of motives, motivation that comes from within, comes from your own um, goals, your own uh, something that, that you just want intrinsically. You want to do something, attain something um, from your own kind of inner world, your own uh, goals, as we we're talking about. Um, extrinsic motivation, as the name suggests, is kind of more influenced by the outside world, more influenced by your social um, surroundings. And it would be like goals that are imposed on you from the outside that you don't really have an intrinsic drive to accomplish. Yeah, I think that's a, a great way of looking at it. And and think about think about your life, right? Because uh, I think this is a really important time to reflect a little bit. What things are you doing in your life that you're doing purely because you want to do them? That there is like pure level of autonomy. I am I am in this. I love this. I'm passionate about it. I want to be doing this. And how many things are you doing in your life because you're chasing some type of external reward, right? expectations from friends, expectations from parents, uh, a bonus at work. Uh, it's something that like some type of uh, punishment that you're trying to avoid at work, right? All of these things that are driving you in a way that's not in line with how you're defining value for yourself, right? Uh, that's really important as we start to think about these things because there's very different outcomes for these two different types of motivation. Yeah, I, I feel like it, it just brings up the, the thought of like a really kind of status-based culture that when, when everyone is concerned about what their position is in the hierarchy more than kind of what their own wants, their own goals are in life, um, that that's a sign that there's a lot of extrinsic motivation. Um, so uh, one thing to mention on this is that... Um, Extrinsic motivation can also be something as simple as uh, working for money or for some kind of external reward. And an interesting thing that I'm just going to mention here, just to kind of plant the idea while we're talking about this, is that 
there's some research that shows that giving an external reward um, to somebody when they're doing something that they're intrinsically motivated to do can actually undermine that intrinsic motivation and make it more difficult for them to pursue that activity for its own sake in the future. Um, so that's something to keep in mind. And, and uh, Huberman talks about this, that uh, if you look at, or that there's these studies with kids who, who love drawing, I think it was, and, yeah. um, and they were just really into it. They just wanted to do it for its own sake. But when they were given a reward for, for drawing, um, it, it reduced like the likelihood that they were going to continue to draw just for their own enjoyment in the future. So it's really interesting to think about how you, you need to be careful with kind of the external rewards that you're giving yourself or that how you're conceptualizing what the reward is for, for doing something. Um, yeah. Sorry. My, uh, my brother really likes to, to do leather work. Uh, and I'd always told him, I'm like, God, you need to just like start a, a shop, right? I start selling all of these things. And he, he was always very like uh, hesitant to do that. Um, and the more I've gotten into this research, the more I've, I'm like backing his decision to do that. Uh, because if he had been chasing the, the monetary rewards of just cranking stuff out just to make money, he would have lost a lot of the pleasure of doing the activity itself. Uh, and this, the study that Andrew just talked about with like kids and drawing, that's been replicated dozens of times with lots of different types of subjects. Um, they have like college students that come in and do like a fun puzzle or whatever. And you have one group that just comes in and does the puzzle. That's all they're told to do. And the other group does the puzzle for money. And there's a period where the researcher says, oh, you know what? The, the study's over, but I need to go grab something down the hall. But, you know, feel free to just kind of keep doing what you're doing. The people that were just doing the puzzle just kept doing the puzzle. And the people that got paid to do the puzzle just sat there, did nothing, right? Uh, and it, it shows that it takes a, a very kind of big rethinking of the way that we're, we're thinking about motivation in general, because especially in like business spheres and all of these different circles, it's how do I get people more motivated, right? It's this level of, of like less or more motivation. It's not a question of type of motivation, right? This is something I take really seriously as a teacher is that like, I don't want my students to be motivated by grades, to be motivated by getting like a good grade on the test or whatever it is, because all those external rewards do is encourage memorizing facts. They don't encourage deep processing because if you can find a reason for that thing to be important to you, to be important for your growth as an individual, you actually learn it to a really high degree. There's tons of studies that show this. And so there's a really big distinction between extrinsic and intrinsic motivation. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like everybody can kind of relate to that when you're, if you're really interested in learning about something and you kind of like uh, you're, there's some problem or some, something that you're trying to figure out going to then like find a source that'll give you the answer for that, you are going to learn from it so much more efficiently than when you're just, it's just thrust on you. Like someone's like, okay, now remember this. And, and it has nothing to do with, you know, your intrinsic motivation mm -hmm. to learn that thing. Um, and uh, before we move on, I just wanted to uh, address a question in the chat from Sadiq it says, is there a different kind of serotonin? Um, no, there's just, just one kind of serotonin. Um, so yeah, check out my videos on serotonin if you're interested. I have a, a few there, but, uh, yeah. And we'll maybe All do right. uh, an episode on psychedelics and stuff. It'll be cool. That would be uh, yeah. But, uh, something that I've thought about in kind of my own journey, especially like when I got into grad school, uh, there's a heavy, uh, emphasis on having to, to use computer code to do these kind of heavy level analyses, right. To do, to analyze brain data and do all of these things. And I remember coming in, it was really daunting. I was trying to take these coding classes and it was just like, there wasn't anything to stick it to. So I was just like memorizing like the functions and things like that. And it was like, I was learning something, but it wasn't until I had my own project that I cared about that all of a sudden, like all of it clicked. I was like putting things together. I was understanding how code worked. I was, I caught this bug and I just loved it all of a sudden and was just like spending hours and hours just doing it. You know, I, uh, there's, 
something to tie it back, right, to some of this dopamine stuff that we've talked about. Think about the external rewards as being really tied to this idea of reward prediction error, these spikes, right? That really, when you get a reward, it's like, oh, cool, I got this reward. But now you expect it, right? And so now you're not getting the same dopamine from it. You may get some like ramping as you get closer, but the more you experience that reward, the less rewarding it is. It becomes something your brain already knows. It doesn't have to learn anything. There's no growth involved, right? Uh, there's really good stuff. Uh, Andrew Huberman mentions her. I think she's at Stanford, uh, Carol Dweck. The idea of growth mindset versus fixed mindset really comes into play here, right? Because fixed mindsets are very much based around a lot of these external rewards. It's like, I'm not getting that because I'm not good enough, right? Uh, it's like, uh, I think what I'm trying to get to is that the process of growth itself is what needs to be rewarding is, and this is when you look at Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? Maslow was a motivation researcher. He was, he was looking at what motivated animals and humans to kind of go out and do things in the world. And the bottom is what we've already talked about is the physiological stuff is the safety stuff. But then you get to this component in the, in the middle that is still very much tied to external stuff to social belonging, right? Uh, doing these things that are expected of you for conformity sake, right? Recognition needs, making sure that my, my work is being kind of recognized by others. But the very top of the pyramid, this idea of self-actualization is what intrinsic motivation is all about. It's all about understanding that I am trying to grow as an individual. And if you can tie whatever reward in your, whatever you're learning, whatever you're doing, if you can tie it to your growth as an individual, you can start training your dopamine system to react to that. Yeah. And it could be, as I think <clears throat> Huberman talks about and others that, that uh, kind of talking to yourself in, in those difficult moments when you're in the, the effort is high and the, the motivation feels relatively low, um, telling yourself like, I am working hard, I'm putting in this effort and that's part of my growth. And I, that is a reward in itself. It might seem kind of like just uh, stilted, like saying that to yourself, but it, there, it really can help you um, develop that, that that really is the reward itself. Um, and this one thing on the, the dopamine, there's one thing on the dopamine that uh, I want to like a wrinkle in the, the, um, the idea that the more you get a reward, the or external reward, uh, the less you'll be motivated to do the task, like from an intrinsic perspective. Um, when the reward is kind of random, like if you don't know whether you're going to get the reward or not, there's actually a, a higher um dopamine spike if you do get that reward. So it's kind of an interesting thing where it has to do with that learning aspect. When when it's unpredictable, when the dopamine or when the reward itself is unpredictable, then you're going to have a higher dopamine response to it. And I think that relates to like, you know, people here might be listening and thinking, well, yeah, okay, I can see what you mean about intrinsic versus extrinsic motivation. That makes sense. You want to be motivated from your own goals, your own actual aspirations, what you really want for yourself. Um, but on the other hand, like, I think we all know that like when something, when we do get an external reward, sometimes that motivates you even more to keep doing that thing. But I think that the key point here is that you don't, you don't want to come to just expect that ex external reward as the thing that you're going after. If it comes as kind of an extra, an add on, like, you know, you get a lot of praise for, for something you did, um, but that doesn't always happen. That is going to be more motivating, that's going to be better for your intrinsic motivation than if you are always just going after that praise every single time. Yeah. And we have in the chat from Taylor, this idea of microdosing dopamine is, it's kind of interesting. Like if you're, if the growth process itself is what's initiating a lot of the dopamine, it's not these like these spikes. It's more about those ramps that we were talking about where you're convincing yourself that there is a reward at the end of what you're doing, right? And so you're you're like convincing your brain to release this like ramp up of dopamine until you get to the end of your workout or whatever it is. Uh, and there's usually unexpected rewards at the end of high effort, 
right? It's like you put in all this effort and then you're like, wow, I just achieved that. Like I, I surprised myself because I, I put that work in, I put that effort in. Um, but it takes that, that self-talk. Uh, I mean, there's entire fields of philosophy. Existentialism is all about this idea. And so it sounds like this really simple concept, ex extrinsic versus intrinsic. Uh, but it wasn't until like 100 years ago, 150 years ago, that people like meaningfully started to talk about how to build yourself, how to grow as an individual, how to spend time actually using your frontal lobe to think about who you are, what you want to be, what you want to grow into. Like so much of our society has been based around external reward, has been based around how do we motivate people? How do we, and that's just a euphemism for how do we control people, right? Instead of setting up context, setting up environments that actually allow people to develop their own intrinsic motivation for wanting to be there in the first place, because that's how you actually get performance. Yeah, and that <clears throat> that ties in directly to something we're going to talk about is uh, this uh, self determination theory. So, um, this is one one big. Uh, it's actually a family of of many theories I recently learned, but um, it has a lot to do with motivation. And specifically, uh, there's this component, this what they call mini theory within um, self determination theory um, that is called a basic psychological needs. And there's this idea that um, there's kind of these three main basic psychological needs that are really important, not only for our motivation, for promoting this intrinsic motivation that we're talking about, but also just your overall well-being in life. And um, these are like autonomy, competence, and relatedness. And so we'll, we'll kind of talk about those more, but just briefly, autonomy is this idea of having control over the decisions in your life, having kind of decision-making power in various domains, whatever you're talking about, whether it's work or your social life or your life in general, having that sense of autonomy. Um, and then competence kind of speaks for itself. It's, it's uh, are you, do you feel like you are good at something? Do you have the, the confidence in, in what you're doing? Um, and then relatedness. And this is kind of the social aspect of, do you have this community of supportive um, connections to other people? And having these three things is a really potent kind of um, like potent psychological uh, way of promoting intrinsic motivation. Um, so yeah, maybe... Want to talk about that and I, I think this this piggybacks really well onto so our last episode was all about kind of performance and action right uh sports performance all of these kind of things and we talked at the end about this thing called optimal performance theory and a huge part of that was autonomy was giving the players choice right i had this whole thing about like even in in professional basketball uh there are teams that will have the players come up with a play and the coaches will come up with a play. So like giving the players some say in what's happening. Um, and they've shown just across the board in sports that if you give people some control over their decisions around their practice routines, around like what they're doing, that it improves performance, right? So, and I think everyone can relate to this fact that when we feel like we don't have control in our lives, it's damaging psychologically, right? If we feel like everything that's happening in our life is being controlled by some external factor, if this is adolescence and you feel like you're being controlled by your parents and you go on this rebellious streak, right? Or if you end up in relationships that feel very controlling or whatever it may be, that that feels very isolating, right? And so having some type of autonomy is really important for wanting to do what you're doing in the first place. If you're constantly being told to do something, there's not a lot of drive there other than those spikes in dopamine of like, oh, I got recognition. Ooh, I didn't get punished, right? Like that's different than taking advantage of the, those growth ramps of like, I'm doing this because I want to, right? Yeah, and, and that's interesting. It's, it's kind of part of the reason uh, that when you hear people talk about goals, including in our uh, video where we talked about goals, um, that starting with, small tasks, starting with, with goals that are manageable, 
that you you actually can kind of control the outcome over and they're not they're not too big not too small but but not too big um can help you grow that sense of autonomy that sense of control even if it's just one step on the way to a larger goal you know seeing that that small task as something you can control can help you build that sense of autonomy um so that's that's just one way, one kind of strategy for, for helping to get a little bit more control over what, when you're like facing a really big goal or big challenge, um, that can be really difficult because it can feel like you don't have any control over the situation. So starting small can be a good way to, to kind of build that. I think that very much ties into one of the other factors too, into competence. Uh, so if you feel in control, if you feel like you are deciding to do that thing, like no one's telling you to, one of the other really important components is that what you're doing has to, in some way, be something that you're getting better at, right? That you are getting positive feedback, you're developing some level of competence in it, and that the competence in that thing is actually important to you. Right. This comes into play in teaching environments all the time. Right. If you go into a class and you don't give a shit about anything that the teacher is teaching you, you're not going to learn anything. Right. You have to care about becoming competent in that thing. And that ties into your ability to be intrinsically motivated. You want you have to make the choice to be there and you have to be getting some type of challenge that's helping you grow in that environment. And I, I think that was something really important that Andrew just said is that that growing component, that building of confidence around the competence is about the small achievable goals. It's really about setting these really small milestones that you're working up one step at a time that keeps that dopamine going, right? Yeah. And that, that I think ties back into this idea of like setting the right, setting those authentic goals that we were talking about. Because um, when you, <clears throat> when something that you, you really want to do, uh, when it like kind of reflects who you are, when, when your goals actually are, are coming from within and it's something that you love the doing of, you actually like, like doing maybe not every part of it, but most of the tasks involved in something, um, that's going to just help you because it's going to be this, I, I just like doing this thing. And then it's going to kind of feed on itself. You're going to get better at that and you're going to get grow your sense of autonomy and competence. And I think I think that is kind of where it begins, choosing goals that are, are really important to you specifically. And, um, you know, sometimes we're constrained in what we can actually do and, and what goals we can pursue at any given moment, but kind of growing the, the, the percentage of, of um, authentic goals that are, make up all the different goals you have in life is probably a, a good basic principle. You know, and something that I think has really started to kind of come to the, the top of my mind, the more we do these episodes and the more I, I really think about the brain is that I think that there's there's two ways of being in the world. There's a very reflex, like reflexive way of being, of kind of reacting to whatever happens, right? Like being pulled with attention. You have like all of these attention disorders these days that we have all of these distractions and so you're just being pulled all over the place. But then there's a, a very like autonomous way of being, a very controlled way of being. And I think that that really requires a lot of effort on your behalf and requires a lot of using this like superpower that we have that is the frontal lobe, that a lot of the reflexive type being is driven by a lot of these older kind of impulsive brain structures. And the actual controlled attention, if you go back to our attention uh, episode uh, and you see these like, these meditators that have 10,000 hours in meditating, they have really thick frontal lobes and their frontal lobes don't deteriorate as they get older because they're actually using them, right? They're spending time actually reflecting on themselves. And think through your life, like our lives are so freaking busy these days. How often do you actually sit there and think about your authentic goals? Think about defining value in your life instead of just allowing the world to define value for you right yeah that is so it's so important i think that that'll like help sustain you to have that but the the thing i did i do want to mention i think sometimes gets lost in in these motivational talks i guess you could call it that um is is uh motivation does naturally ebb and flow and this is 
it goes up and down. Like what we're talking about with dopamine, dopamine is a, a chemical. It's a, it's a thing in your brain that has to be synthesized. And there's only so much of it at any given time. And so if you are constantly, um, Huberman talks about this a lot too. <clears throat> if you are constantly doing really high dopamine activities, <clears throat> excuse me, and you're always uh, like kind of in this high state of drive and motivation, that unless you, you are like one in a million type of person, uh, that's not going to last. There's going to be a dip. There's going, and if, if you are, you know, spiking it, spiking it, spiking it, doing, you know, stimulants and, and like skydiving and doing, and then going to your, your high pressure job and get like doing all kinds of stuff all the time, um, then it's going to crash. So th there is like this aspect of, we do kind of have to balance all of what we're talking about with all the important stuff we're saying, setting authentic goals, building autonomy, building competence, and having that social connection around you. Those are all really, really important for maintaining motivation, but also just realize that this is a biological chemical system. And if you don't kind of give yourself time, uh, space and time to resynthesize, literally like recreate the dopamine in your brain, you're going to find yourself maybe in the state of burnout or, or just low motivation. And it'll be like, why, you know, why can't I get anything done today? And you'll be going to this video and getting frustrated with us because you're like, I'm doing all the stuff you're saying and it's not working. And so I think sometimes, you know, maybe it's good to step back. And if you can't like take time off from work, I know like that's often really hard for people, um, depending on, you know, your situation, but just like trying to maybe back off a little bit. Don't, don't hit the, hit it so hard every time because you feel like you have to always be keeping your dopamine really high. Like it's sometimes it's better to, to kind of go, you know, the, the low and slow route rather than like the up and down spiking <laughs> your dopamine all the time. And I mean, that, that brings something to mind for me. Uh, you have people like Jocko Willink and David Goggins, these, these yeah. Navy SEALs that are like, discipline eats motivation for breakfast, right? Uh, that there is a component to this, that what we're talking about is building discipline, right? If you are, if you are engaging in a growth mindset most of the time, right? If you're doing these activities because they are kind of helping you become the person that you want to be, there are going to be moments where that in itself is motivating. But like Andrew's saying, there are going to be times where you are depleted. You don't have the motivation. And what you're going to need in those moments is the discipline that you've built through those moments of defining who you want to be. And sometimes you're going to be doing things that suck that you don't want to do. Uh, and sometimes you're not going to have, like when the motivation's there, great, that's awesome. But sometimes you're going to have to spend time reminding yourself why you're doing that and reminding yourself that, that you're here because of who you're going to be tomorrow. Yeah. And, and that there is a, you know, a, a reward, the kind of an intrinsic reward for, for hard work and effort itself, especially when it's on the way to these, these authentic goals. Like when you're, like we said before, when you're in that moment of this is really difficult and you're able to kind of push yourself along saying, this is good that I am staying on this path that I'm working toward this and putting that effort in, um, pushing into that, um, <clears throat> that itself, like you're, you're going to experience psychological reward. It's after that later on, maybe. Um, so yeah, so it's definitely discipline is, is important there. Too. And, and how do you remind yourself? Right. And that's where I think these three factors are really important because reminding yourself that you're on a growth trajectory is, am I doing this because I want to, autonomy, right? Am I doing this because it's helping me grow and is making me more competent, right? Competence. The other one is relatedness, right? And it's very kind of tied to these ideas of belonging from Maslow and things like that. But I personally think it's more than that. Our personal identity, I, I do this activity whenever I talk about identity in my group dynamics class or, or anything. I mean, it's, it's very tied to the work that I do is thinking about identity. I ask people the question, who am I? right? I have them sit there and reflect on it for two, three minutes. And they write down as many words as they can to describe who they are. And afterwards, I have them reflect on that. And I say, how many of those words that you wrote down were just about you? And how many of them were related in nature? How many of them were about your ties to a group, your ties to your spouse, your ties to your family? 
that group identity is a part of your growth, right? And that's what I really think the relatedness is. It's not doing things because you want people to like you because you want to fit in, but doing things because it's part of your group identity. That group is meaningful to you. And your growth as an individual is also contributing to your growth as a part of that group. And so like asking yourself those three questions, is this making me a better group member? Is this making me a more confident person? And is this something that I'm doing because I want to be doing it? It's going to allow you to build that discipline. That's, yeah, that's, that's really good to mention. Um, uh, just looking at the chat, um, uh, I'm not sure how to pronounce that, but Sayanth uh, says from India. That's really cool. That's awesome. Um, that we've got <laughs> people from all over the world checking this out, and it just made me think as you were saying that they, uh, the group dynamics when you when you ask people to describe themselves. It's, I mean, you could correct me if I'm wrong here, but like people from typically from Eastern cultures tend to uh, say more about the the their relationships and group memberships, uh, things that they're a part of in that way. And then Westerners tend to talk more about themselves or their, their kind of like, uh, individual, um, qualities. So there's a, I, I've developed a very different way of thinking about individualism for, versus collectivism because of these things, uh, in collectivist cultures, only 60% of people are self-identified as collectivist. The other 40% are individualistic. In individualistic cultures, you have 60% are individualistic. The other 40 are collectivist. But it shows that it's a continuum, that people are not collectivist or individualistic. Depending on the context of the situation, my group identity is going to be more salient than my individual identity. If I'm working for a company that I love, that is part of like who I want to be, in those moments, I am going to actually shed my personal identity in place of the group values, right? Because that context is making the group stuff so important, even if I'm very individualistic, right? And so there are times in our life where our individual identity is more important, right? If it's really competitive in nature, if we have to climb a ladder. And there are other times where I really want the group to succeed. And in those moments, I drop all of my individual stuff. And in those moments, I want to perform to help the group succeed, right? And so there is tendencies in different cultures, but it's all a continuum. And every single person is going to experience collectivist type behaviors and individualistic type behaviors that can be intrinsic or extrinsic. That really makes sense. Yeah, yeah. And I feel like when uh, when it comes down to it, it's like even your group membership, even the the, the group memberships, like... I feel like uh, shedding that that individual identity and taking on the group identity and the, the sort of like uh, the processes you were just talking about. Um, I wonder if it's it's healthy to do that when the group is truly important to you. When you when you really believe that there, there's some value to you um, in some way. I feel like a lot of people get trapped in being in in groups just for the sake of the the status or or whatever it is, and they're not really questioning, okay, is this a good idea for me to be um, kind of like so closely identifying with this group? Uh, is it really serving me? I guess that's the, the question I'm asking. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think we should do a whole episode on this because yeah. <laughs> uh, it, it ties into uh, the idea of cohesion, right? So cohesive groups are ones where they've successfully balanced individual needs with group needs where the individuals are there because they want to be there and they want the group to succeed. And that's why those groups work so well together. And that's the ultimate, that's the ultimate goal of running a good company, of running a good sports team, is creating a group environment where people's individual identities mesh with the group identity, that you're doing it because you want to do it, you want to be there and you want the group to succeed. All right, well, um, <laughs> looks like we're, we're almost at the end here. Um, uh, one last comment, uh, Sadiq says, we have to find our identity within our group. So yeah, interesting we thought to are chew on there. the most social species on the face of the planet. So yeah, yeah. I, um, oh, it looks like my video might have froze. <laughs> That's all right. We got one more okay. minute. So okay, we'll cool. start closing it out. Uh, thank you all for continuing to listen. Uh, I was just chatting with Andrew at the beginning of this, and we've now been doing this for 26 weeks. That's like half a year. 
crazy to think about. Uh, and we just very much appreciate that you all keep showing up and watching. We love doing this. We love talking about the brain. Uh, Andrew is completely black right now. I hope he's coming back at some point. Can you hear uh, me? Do you want to say a few things? I can hear you. <laughs> okay. Okay, good. No, I was just, I didn't know if I was completely gone. <laughs> so do you want to maybe tell them uh, how they can help us? Yeah, yeah. So um, just uh, these these comments, like participating in the chat and uh, liking the video and then commenting afterwards, sharing this with anybody who you think might uh, might be interested or might benefit from it. That is all super helpful for us. Um, also, uh, subscribing to our channels and subscribing to the podcast on whatever podcast platform you use. Uh, we're really trying to kind of uh, build listenership there. So that would be great. Um, and then uh, we've been talking about this for weeks. And I promise it will come out soon. We're going to be uh, dropping a, a page or a, um, setting up a Patreon page for the social brain. And um, yeah, that that's going to be coming soon. And then Taylor has a, a store with some really cool merch and stuff. And maybe you want to talk about that. <laughs> yeah, my wife's got in uh, a store that she runs. She's created shirts and mugs and everything. There's neuroscience stuff. There's therapy stuff, mindfulness stuff. But uh, it's a great way to to support us. Um, also, I. Andrew and I, I think, have like four months of listening time on Audible. We listen to tons of audiobooks, uh, and we have a link in our uh, in our description too that gives you a free trial for Audible. You get a free book with it. You can try the molecule more. Like Andrew mentioned, even if you cancel your subscription and just take the free book, we still get a piece, and it helps us out. So uh, anything like that, too, so. and you keep the book. Yep. So awesome. We just want to keep doing this. We love doing this, but we also have uh, mouths to feed and things. So, <laughs> all right. Well, uh, it's been awesome. Thank you, everyone, for for listening and watching, and uh, we'll see you next time. See ya.